we're going to actually um, make relatively quick work of our worship service today because if you're here and you didn't know it, immediately after our worship service, uh, we're going to have what is our first congregational team meeting. And so, you know, you don't have, there's, there's no cost or obligation to this, and it's really a good opportunity if you're still kind of trying to figure out whether or not this is home for you as a church, uh, this would be a great time to kind of dig into some of the information. Lots of different people will be speaking uh, up in front of you in terms of uh, it's not going to be me rambling for an hour and a half, so don't worry about it. As a matter of fact, at the conclusion of that brief meeting, uh, we have two gargantuan Big Papa's pizzas that are going to be waiting outside for you, so there's a reward at the end. So we try to do our best to make it worth your while. Um, we're going to go. We'll take a break for five minutes at, at, uh, after we sing a, uh, a song uh, after my sermon. And then we're going to actually uh, recongregate and we'll have some information for you and we'll go from there. But welcome and uh, let me pray for us this morning as we look to the word because uh, I would love uh, for us to be encouraged by God's presence today. So let's go before the Lord. Jesus, you called your disciples away to quietness, and they looked forward to that so much that they were actually rude and unhospitable to others. And uh, we're thankful that in this moment that you've given us uh, the treasure of being able to sit at your feet and uh, stow away from the stresses and strains of our world. And uh, we profess a belief that you speak to us through your word and through the presence of your spirit in us and your presence of your spirit among us. And yet, Father, so often we race through this time in your word without giving attention to the fact that you may be speaking to us. Jesus, we need you. We don't need a, a religious experience that seems like you. We just need you. We need to know that you love us, that we're secure in you. We need to know that you have our times in your hands, that you've, Jesus, purchased on the cross for us, everything we need for life and godliness, that we can rest in you. So I pray that that same peace that you offered every time you came around people would be that which we would receive during this time. We'd hear you. For it is you, Jesus, that we need, and it is in your name that we pray. Amen. I was so proud of myself when we moved into our house a year ago because I put together not one, but two Ikea bed sets for my children. Now, I don't know if any of you spend a lot of time at the Ikea show, uh, stores here in Los Angeles. They didn't have those in Tallahassee, Florida. It's been one of the perks of being here as opposed to Tallahassee. And, and they have a phenomenon. It is called the Ikea effect. Don't know if you're aware of it. And it is defined as a cognitive, uh, a cognitive failure that occurs when consumers place a disproportionately high value on products they partially create. This means that, that there are people that love IKEA furniture not so much because of its quality, but because they feel like they have some ownership in it because they actually put it together. They take great pride in it. And it's like, I own IKEA furniture as if they're dealing with handcrafted materials. And there's a, there is some really good reasons why. Some people use that as a, as a motivator to say, you know, you should get people involved in ownership level of everything because even if they have nothing to do with it, they delusionally will walk through everything as if they do. 
without any sense of whether or not they really had anything to do with it. When I think about Ikea, I don't get proud from the standpoint of I don't think this is a higher quality material than it is because of two really important things. One is obviously I know I didn't put together the wood or paint it. I didn't carve this wood out of a tree. I mean, this stuff was presented to me in a box. But more importantly, there was instructions along with it. I have to tell you, without the instructions, Ikea furniture building is a challenge. And so people that would actually delusionally walk in this Ikea effect world where they were, you know, thought more highly of their work than they should because they had some role in it, they forget a couple of things. They forget that, A, they had nothing to do with it, and B, without the instructions, they probably wouldn't have gotten that far in the first place. This is effectively what we're trying to do in this series that we're doing at the beginning of 2014 is to help us to see, A, what the instructions are for the church, and then B, why do we do the things that we do? And, and probably today we'll discover most importantly that in the end, the goal is that Jesus would be glorified for what he's built and not us sitting around taking pride in something that he actually gave us in the first place. Jesus has given us everything we have. We're going to be a church that makes a difference in our community. It's not going to be because any one of us has the skills or the abilities. It's not going to be because any one of us is godly enough to make that happen. It's, it's a miracle of his grace made possible by the real presence of the Son of God, the one who created and through whom everything was created. It is his presence in our midst that brings about the miraculous. Today I want to talk about prayer, and I think that is probably obvious to everybody involved, including people who have no interest whatsoever in religious things that Jesus taught us to pray. In fact, it's remarkable to me how many people can tell you the pattern by which Jesus taught us to pray, even though they have zero biblical knowledge whatsoever, because of the Lord's Prayer. I mean, I was a basketball coach on a high school, public high school team in Florida, and we weren't allowed to lead the kids in prayer, but they were allowed to do that, and they would, even though maybe one or two of them actually had relationship with Jesus, and I knew this because I knew the kids, they would all hold hands and say the Lord's Prayer together. I watched a Madonna video once before her concerts. Her and her team get together and say the Lord's Prayer. I'm thinking, wow, that's interesting. And the whole world thinks at some level that if they can just get together before a football game, like in Friday Night Lights, and, and say the Lord's Prayer together, they're going to magically create this environment where God's kind of sort of on their side. I mean, that's really the mentality and what no one ever stops to think about is, is if this team is praying the Lord's player and this team is praying the Lord's player, how do we know whose God is going to answer, really? I mean, what else is involved in this? That said, it's pretty obvious to everybody that we should pray, but it's not obvious at all to most why Christians are supposed to be praying people. There are three books I've read over the years, one most recently given to me called The Circle Maker, the other one that I remember from just a few years back is The Prayer of Jabez, and a third called Fresh Wind, Fresh Fire, which was by Jim Cimbala, who founded the Brooklyn Tabernacle. All three of these books are about prayer. They're books that are designed to encourage you to pray. They provide paradigms for prayer. And while I don't have any trouble with that, I think anytime you're encouraged or I'm motivated to pray and focus on prayer is a good thing, Sometimes these books will tend to communicate to people, whether it's intentional or not, that God's kind of here to serve your needs. That what prayer is, is you dream up whatever you want to dream up, 
And then you just got to ask him enough and say these prayers enough and say them the right way enough and with enough faith enough. And then God is there to kind of like be your genie. You rub on the lamp enough and he just, shazam, you get three wishes. And this would be sort of what ends up happening even so subtly in people's minds. And obviously, our church and the movement that we're a part of would contend that this is not the purpose of prayer. Ultimately, though, I will say that prayer, even prayer where we're asking God to move in our lives and do things in our lives, it's a byproduct of relationship with Jesus. It is because we want to have relationship with Jesus. It's because God created you to commune with him, to communicate with him from the very beginning. Our first parents, Adam and Eve, were brought into a world not to just exist by themselves, but they were interacting with and communing with and talking with God. And this is what God is about. He wants to have relationship with us. And there's this beautiful component of that in the world in which we live where he wants to simultaneously work through us and use prayer as a means of directing us. So I want to talk about two things as it relates to prayer this morning. And very specifically, I want to use this metaphor, if you will, Jesus' experience in feeding the 5,000 to show us the impact that prayer can have in our lives. Admittedly, from the get-go, this passage is not Jesus teaching on prayer. I think we've already covered that Jesus has taught us to pray. I would like to help us to see exactly what it is and why it is that we're supposed to pray. And so the first thing I'll share with you is this this morning from Mark chapter 6, and that is we pray so that we can discover the passions of Jesus. When Jesus gathered these people In verse 34, it says, he went ashore, he saw a great crowd, and he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. And he began to teach them many things. And when it grew late, his disciples came to him and said, this is a desolate place and the hour is now late. Send them away to go into the surrounding countryside and villages and buy themselves something to eat. But he answered them, you give them something to eat. I always chuckle. I even chuckled this morning as Matt was reading this passage. The... The selfishness, and I think we can all see it in the disciples who would go, you know, it's getting late here. and People are getting kind of hungry, Jesus. Why don't you just send these people away? I mean, there's an inhospitableness to them that says, hey, it's us and you, and the rest of them can go and fend for themselves. We're not going to share our bread with them. We're not going to share our fish with them. We're not going to share our time alone with Jesus and let these people interrupt our little fellowship together. I mean, there was a mentality that this is ours and send them away. And and I guess it's so in touch with my own selfishness that it makes me chuckle. Now, the reason this passage is such a great one for talking about prayer is that it shows the essence of what our relationship with Jesus is supposed to be about. We walk with him through the power of his spirit in our lives, hoping to watch him work in our lives and the lives of those around us. And as we're walking and talking with him, we discover that which stirs his compassion we discover in just fellowship with Jesus. See, they're carrying on. They're walking with him. They're talking with him. They're saying, I want to be alone with you. Jesus invites them to a desolate place where they can hang out together, just the gang of them. And in this quiet space, they begin to hear Jesus say, I have compassion for these people. They're like, a, they're like sheep without a shepherd. You and I pray to get our minds around what Jesus wants in this world. 
We pray to discover the passions of Jesus. When he taught us to pray, he said, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. He's teaching us that in prayer, we're supposed to come alongside of him and hear what he thinks about the world. We let him shape our views of our circumstances. The disciples were ready to send others away and keep their relationship with Jesus all of themselves. This is unfortunately too often the attitude of the church. We create a holy huddle. We don't want Jesus to interrupt our comfortable little world. And then through prayer, we discover that for him, it's not an either-or proposal. He wants to care for us. He desires to love us, but he also wants to feed others. He wants us to continuously be bringing others in for him to feed them. Prayer is our submission to his way of seeing the world. It's the means of us not only talking to God, but allowing his spirit in us, the presence of Jesus in our lives, to move us and direct us. It is in the quietness of listening and prayer that we begin to see the world we face. We begin to see the trials and the temptations correctly. It is why for the past 24 hours, I and some in our church have turned off the world. I refer to it as unplugging from the matrix. We've turned off our smartphones and turned off our computers. And boy, it was hard yesterday because there were two really great NFL playoff football games on. And I was like, ah! But I thought, okay, I'm going to disconnect from the world so I can quiet my soul. And I want to tell you, it, it was amazing the kind of things I heard. Amazing the ways that Jesus was shaping me. Every day, I have to have a time alone with Christ in the morning in order to see the ebbs and flows of my day correctly. That is the purpose of time with Jesus in your life. It isn't so that you can check off a little box of things you've done to make God happy and like you more. It's so that you can actually see him correctly. Uh, It may surprise you, and that's one of the best parts about having a small church. You know, we're just three years old. We're getting to know each other. We're having our first official congregational meeting today. Uh, That 7% of our church is optometrists. Now, I think that's amazing. Now, again, that's only three people. But, I mean, you know, when you think in a church of 40 folks, you know, to have you have three up top. I mean, if you have bad eyes and you're in our church, you're just not trying hard enough because there are people here to help you. Linda's here today. The yaps are on vacation. I'm just telling you, when I broke, sat on my glasses this past uh, fall, which obviously would be disastrous for the glasses, my, <laughs> my friends, the yaps, uh, not that Linda wouldn't have done this, but she's working at a, a college. Uh, they, they graciously surprised me with a new pair of glasses. See, it's critical for me. I do not see the world well without shades. The older, the, the, the older I'm getting, too, the more both my spouse and I can't read anything without reading glasses on. I know you wouldn't look at me and think, wow, this is a guy that needs reading glasses. I know, I look young for my age, don't I? No, but seriously, it's just one of those things. You get older, your eyes kind of get out of whack, and the next thing you know, it's very hard to see things. This is the equivalent of what the absence of prayer is in our lives, the absence of communing with Jesus in our lives. What it does is it distorts your view of the world. Your problems become bigger than they really are. Your issues become bigger than they really are. The voices of anxiety and fear and pain that speak to us, and they're real, they get distorted. I can make out your shape right now as I take my glasses off. I can see the roundness of your head. For some of you, I can see the colors of your hairs. 
but I can't make out any of the detail in your face right now. I put my glasses on, and now I see things a little more clearly, a lot more clearly, quite frankly. This is what prayer is supposed to do. You might think for a second that you got a pretty good bead on the world, and so that you can kind of just process this on your own. When you're walking with Jesus, what you end up doing is seeing what he sees. You don't see the crowds as an interruption in your time with the disciples. You see the crowds as an opportunity to show your glory to your disciples, that your disciples would get an even greater picture of who you really are. They would comprehend it in a really incredible way. Now, all of us by nature, both physically and spiritually, don't naturally see the events of life the way Jesus does. They cause anxiety, anger. They simply cause our hearts to live without peace and joy. And we're called by Jesus to trust in him. Philippians chapter 4, verses 4 through 7, the Apostle Paul writes, Rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again, rejoice. Let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near. Do not be anxious about anything. But in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your request to God, and the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. As a church, especially as we move into 2014, I believe God's calling us to spend more time praying, less time trying, less time sitting on the sidelines waiting for something to happen. And to that end, he has called me, and by extension, because Matt has to do what I tell him, uh, Matt and I are going, because he works here at the church, uh, we're going to be here every Sunday night starting the second Sunday in February from 6 to 7 praying. And we invite you to be a part of that team. I'll talk a little bit about it in a bit. But I'm convinced that the, the challenges we face as a young church are not things we can fix. They're things in our own lives that we look, wow, this is out of sorts or this is out of shape or I'd like this to be different. And you may find yourself, as I often do, at a place where you go, I can't create within my heart a greater love for God. I cre- can't create in my world people who I have opportunity to share the gospel with. I, I can't create opportunities to do things for God. Jesus has to show up here. And prayer is the way we want to do that. But as a church, we want to move in concert with Jesus. And it won't happen unless we pray. We pray so we can discover the passions of Jesus. The second thing I'll share with you this morning is this. We pray so we can uncover the power of Jesus. In verse 37 of Mark 6, Jesus answered them, you give, me, you give them something to eat. And they said to him, shall we go and buy 200 denarii worth of bread and give it to them to eat? You can just hear the indignation in their voice. This is going to cost me something. He said to them, how many loaves do you have? Go and see. And when they found out, they said, five and two fish. So they're trying to prove their point here. Then he commanded them all to sit down in groups on the green grass. They sat down in groups by hundreds and fifties and taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing and broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples to set before the people and he divided the two fish among them all. And they ate. They all ate and were satisfied. See, the disciples brought their stuff to Jesus and Jesus multiplied their stuff, gave it back to them to give to the others. See, he still uses us in this process. He just needs our little stuff 
and then he blesses it, and then he gives it back to us to distribute, and we're distributing far more than we had in the first place. Ultimately, Jesus is what the people need and not food, and unfortunately, there have been people who've read this passage over the years and said, well, this is the ob- obviously this means that we're just supposed to be involved in social gospel ministry. We are supposed to meet the needs of people, but this metaphorically, this story is about Jesus demonstrating who he is to the people. This is about demonstrating that Jesus is God incarnate, that he is God in the flesh. He's demonstrating his power, that by his word the worlds are created. He's demonstrating to them who he is. He obviously desires to feed them, but it is how he feeds them that enables others to see for themselves who he is. It's an important distinction. See, we're supposed to help people But the ultimate goal of our renewing culture component of Prism Church's mission is that people would see Jesus in us. We could do it in our own abilities, give what little paltry sums we have to people, and that would be a kind thing to do. But will they see Jesus? Will they say anything more than there's another group of do-gooders out there doing good? See, without prayer, without Jesus involved in the process of multiplying what we're doing, moving in people, I'm not certain, I'm not confident that they will see for themselves who he is. As well, when it's just him doing it, when it's our paltry sum given to him to multiply into something more, when we bring our needs to him and he answers them, he receives the glory and credit for the feeding And then others begin to see and think that Jesus can begin to work in their lives too. Do you want the Lord to work in your life in the miraculous way? Do you have a need that Jesus would do something in your heart? I know for me, I think about my own life. I think about my family's life. I think about our church family's life. And I think, Jesus, we desperately need you to do something in our midst. We want to see you change us, change others, change our world. We want to be involved in seeing our souls revive. We we want to be involved in making friends with people who don't know the love of God and reaching them for Christ. We want to be involved in renewing culture. And Jesus wants to use us to do the miraculous, but it's going to require a couple things for us, from us, all right? The first is it's it's going to require our discomfort, You want Jesus to work in your life, it's going to require, you want Jesus to do the miraculous in your life, it's going to require your discomfort. Verses 35 and 36, it's pretty remarkable what's happening. He gave, uh, it says in the passage, when it grew late, his disciples came to him and said, this is a desolate place and the hour is now late. Send them away to go into the surrounding countrysides and villages and buy themselves something to eat. See, they were intruding on the comfort level of the disciples. The disciples said, we don't have the money to do this. We don't have the ability to feed these people. We don't even really want to feed these people. (laughs) We just want to be alone with you and be left alone. What happened to the campfire where it's just the 12 of us chilling and, you know, I want that. These people are messing up my world. See, if we don't ever get to a place where we have a need, (laughs) then it's really going to be impossible for God to show himself in our lives. Andre Crouch used to sing, if I never had a problem, I wouldn't know God could solve them. You know, and to me, I'm thinking to myself, if I didn't have an issue that was requiring the miraculous, I sadly have to tell you that oftentimes I probably would just try to do it on my own. 
I was telling Carolyn just the other day, I am the last person on the wor- in the world God wants to make a millionaire. I'd be a terrible millionaire. I'd be buying stuff that I didn't need, including that 100 soda flavor machine they have now in Cadoba and at Fuddruckers. You know, I walked into the Cadoba and this thing's got an amazing computer in it. And I'd have one of these in my living room if I was a millionaire. Completely unnecessary. The poor would go uncared for. I'd have a soda machine that was technologically unbelievable. I have to sadly admit to you as your pastor that I love my comfort oftentimes more than I love wanting to see the miraculous happen in my life. Why is it that, for instance, I continue to go into church planting and I think it's because God says, you know, you don't do very well when you've got lots of resources and lots of people. You need to be in a place where I am the one that is working and you're the one sitting watching me work and everybody knows that's the case. So for me, this is where God has called me in life. I invite you to join me in this discomfort, please. (laughs) If we're never placed in situations where we realize that we're unable to do that which is before us, we'll operate under the delusion that we can do all things without God when exactly the opposite is true. Second thing it'll require from us, not just our discomfort, our deference. In verses 36 and 37, Jesus tells them, you... Give them something to eat. So they had to actually defer to what Jesus is saying. It doesn't make any sense. They're like, we don't have that kind of dough on us. Or if they did have 200 denarii, they certainly weren't willing to spend it on the food that they would have to get for everybody else. So they had to bring themselves by prayer into a place of saying, okay, we hear you. We're a little uncomfortable. Uh, Perhaps we don't understand, but we're going to defer to what you say about things. We're going to have to defer to Jesus' wisdom on all subjects facing our church, facing our lives, facing our families. We're going to have to trust and obey him if we're going to see the miraculous in our lives. We're going to have to face the painful reality that we don't have the ability to do miracles in people's lives, let alone our own. We're going to have to humble ourselves. We're going to have to determine that the ultimate goal in this life is for us and others to see Jesus for who he is and make his glory our ultimate goal in this life. We pray so we can uncover the power of Jesus. We pray so that the scales will fall off the eyes of people and they will see Jesus. We pray so that when he does his work in our lives, people will see him and not us. And the reason that's challenging for people like me, and perhaps you join my merry band of broken folks, is because we want people to think we're in charge. We want, in American culture, the worst. We want people to think, I did it. Look at me. I'm self-sufficient. We want to be one of those traveling speakers, or at least I do, where I have a mob of people asking me, telling me, Chuck, how do I do life and have success just like you and Joel Osteen? (laughs) How do I do? I want to be that guy. The worst part about that message is, is it appeals to everything in my flesh. I don't want to be the guy that goes, listen, gang, I have uh, a, 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 a bit of knowledge to pass along. I'm walking with Jesus. You're welcome to follow me, but I'm not that far ahead of you on the path. When we think about it, we're all on our way to Jesus. We're all following Jesus, and I would love to be your pastor and lead us in that following of Jesus, but I'm not Jesus. We're praying so that people will see Jesus. You're praying for the things in your life, not so you can have what you want, 
not so that you can demand of God to meet your needs, but that things would come about in your life that would enable others to see his glory and power. Practically speaking, this means that if we want to see the miraculous in our personal lives or in our quote-unquote parish life, we have to bring our lives to Jesus in prayer and in offering. And if we don't bring our proverbial loaves and fishes to him, we cannot expect that he would do the miraculous in our midst and demonstrate his glory to those who need him. Mark Batterson is the author of one of the books I mentioned earlier, The Circle Maker, and he had this profound thought that I'll close with this morning. The greatest moments in life are the miraculous moments when human impotence and divine omnipotence intersect. And they intersect when we draw a circle around the impossible situations in our lives and invite God to intervene. So as we head to communion this morning, let's pray and ask God to intervene in our lives. Let's go before the Lord in prayer today. Lord, we come before you and we recognize that you've called us to live lives that are continuously demonstrating that we only do this by your grace and your power. And I can't think of much else that you would give to us other than the communion table to demonstrate this, that without the broken body of Jesus, without the spilled blood of Jesus, we wouldn't be free enough to tell you we're weak, we're frightened. We wouldn't be free enough in your presence to act selfish like the disciples did and have you gently correct us. Thank you for the gospel, that living in your presence, Jesus, we don't have to pretend we got more of our stuff together than we do, but we get the opportunity to have you gently correct us. I would pray today as my friends and I come to the table that you'd speak to us and bring peace to our hearts, that we would trust you. And friend, if you're here, I want to pray for you again this morning and, and, and pray. If you, if you know Christ as Savior, you're welcome to our table. It has nothing to do. It's the Lord's table. And it doesn't matter what your denominational background is. Uh, if you genuinely know Christ, come. You take bread, you dip it in wine. These are symbolic of what Jesus has done for you. And it's supposed to be a time where you reenter his presence boldly to receive grace in your time of need. Father, would you bless my friends, my family, my church family, with the sense that you deeply love them this morning as they come to you and ask you to meet their needs. For we pray in Jesus' name, amen. The table's open. Come and enjoy the presence of the Lord.